nights when one drink with the girls turns into a bottle, but you need your car for brunch the next day. There's pickup. Or at Friday work drinks, where you don't want to leave your car with expensive tools at the pub. There's pickup. Don't miss out on the fun. Get a pickup. Simply book on our app and we'll pick you up to drive you and your car home. Two drivers arrive, one drives you home in your car, and the other driver follows. Download the Pickup app today. That's PKUP and wake up worry free. Hi, I'm Jamie Wincup. Hi, I'm Rick Kelly. Hi, I'm Lee Holdsworth, and you're listening to Inside Supercars. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. Shannon Kiley joins us on the line, the Managing Director of Erebus Motorsport. And Shannon, welcome back to Inside Supercars. Thank you for having me. 2020, how are you going to write that up in your memoirs? I think 2020 is certainly going to be a year that we're never going to forget. Uh, there's obviously been challenges as well, but... I think there's also been some positives to take out of it and a lot of, I suppose, learning experiences that we'll take forward into years to come that if we weren't faced with the challenges, then we never would have had to, I guess, overcome them and then grow. When you were at Melbourne Grand Prix after, after the Adelaide 500, what now is the final Adelaide 500, yes. what were the thoughts on Friday? What were you thinking as Managing Director of a supercar team? Were you thinking that you weren't going to get to racing? Well, at, at that point, um, I was still GM of communication, so I hadn't actually stepped up yet. That actually happened uh, during the lockdown period. But Friday was a very weird one because we you know, obviously didn't know what, happening, what was happening. So actually heading into the circuit, we were kind of expecting a phone call to turn around or, you know, come in, pack up the truck and, and go home. Uh, and it was sort of, we we got a, a vibe, a feeling that this didn't look like it was going ahead. Uh, though it was just a, a bit of a waiting game. We were basically uh, standing in the garage, ready to roll out uh, for what I think was the third qualifying session. Uh, I think Porsche or something was on their dummy grid. They'd been waiting for half hour or so to go out for their session as well. And that's when we finally got word that, no, it won't go ahead. And at at that point, we thought, okay, it's this weekend. Um, You know, potentially we might not race for, for two weeks, which could have impeded on Tasmania as well. But we certainly didn't see it playing out the way it did. What was the first thing you did as communications manager? Uh, notified uh, all our partners, uh, everyone we had uh, attending the track, and then obviously uh, with supercars guidance, uh, managing you know what the communication was to the fans, uh, you know not only the broader public but even the people that were actually standing at the gate waiting to get in, not also not sure what was going on. It's something you've probably never had to experience before, a, a race meeting being cancelled, you know, on the, well, partway through. In fact, uh, in the record books, there's records that still stand from that meeting. That's it, yeah. Technically, uh, you know, when, when we, I guess, did the tally in our head, I thought, oh, there's, four, there's four more races that I can't remember that happened. But, you know, they did, because we had qualified, we had actually started the event. Uh, the event did still count, although we, we didn't actually make it to the racing part. So then lockdown and the uncertainty of what the teams, what the teams are going to do, how you're going to keep people employed. Most yep. most teams run on a, well, the literal smell of a Penrite oily rag, if you were certainly talking about your team. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, lockdown, obviously, as I said, we, we didn't expect it to be what it was. Uh, we, I believe it took about a week or two to become something, I suppose, that's a bit more permanent. Uh, you know, we all, we all went home to work. Uh, and then supercars, I think, were actually very uh, reactive in once we did know, okay, we won't be racing for a little while. 
you know, what can we do to transform the sport? How can we entertain fans? How can we get commercial value for our partners? And basically just, I guess, transitioned into the new world during that time. How much were teams involved in setting up that transition? And obviously the first thing that was visual was the what now has become a, a thought of as a very successful Supercars E-Series. That's right. I think you know, there was, you know, Supercars had, had dipped their toe in uh, last year and, you know, some teams, uh, had, I guess, had uh, participated. We were one team that hadn't. Um, so it was really our first uh, taste of, of what, this the virtual world was and it was really surprising um and i think as well you 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 gained a new audience through those gamers um that that you know are potentially you know a younger demographic to what our typical supercars demographic are but then it was also a different way for our usual fans to be able to engage with the drivers so you know, not only was there normal racing, but there were things like Twitch and things that could actually give the fans access to the drivers that they never had before. It was kind of like, you know, they could, they could listen to their road rage in a sense. What did you know about Twitch before the E-Series? I had never heard of it, <laughs> but I quickly learned what it was all about and, you know, saw that the uptake was phenomenal. And, you know, learned a lot about, I guess, you know, different platforms online that, as I said, you know, things that people had never looked at before. Uh, you actually see, you know, the benefit and the success that they can actually bring. So I think there was about three new channels that everyone got introduced to for communications. Mm-hmm. What of those communication channels have become the norm for your team's operation now? I suppose as in social channels or the way we operate on a daily basis? No, I'm talking social channels really. Like are you still using Twitch? Are you using uh, the YouTube? You already had the YouTube video channel, I guess, but have have you changed the way that you've done that because of what the E-Series does and then... Oh, the other one, of course, is how you were communicating amongst yourselves with um, either Teams or uh, Zoom or those other um, video conferencing platforms. Yeah, so so with Twitch, uh, it definitely became something that uh, has it went outside just the E-Series uh, for the team. Uh, and it did continue for a while. I suppose the only thing uh, with Twitch, it is more the gaming side of things. So, you know, I'm sure when there is another E-Series again, which we did have a second one this year, uh, but next year and, and moving forward that, you know, we look at, at continuing those things. I suppose it's just for us, it's not something that is a constant, whereas your usual platforms like our YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, like your more, I guess, usual platforms, they're something that we can actually continue uh, throughout the year. But we did definitely learn different ways to do things. Obviously, during that time, you know, content was king. Uh, You know, there wasn't, there was racing, obviously, with the E-Series, but it wasn't quite like the way it was. There There was two hours every week. There wasn't you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday worth of content and, and not a lot of new stuff coming through. So obviously we had to keep creating content but also do it from our own homes. So, you know, Twitter, um, sorry, Zoom and Teams and things like that uh, were different methods that we communicated but were also how we were grabbing content as well and then using them online to then service our sponsors and give them commercial value. I guess our Discord was another one that some some teams and some drivers were using um, as well, which is another uh, sort of gaming platform, I guess for some uh, for some people. Now, during that time, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. you were then moved up to the managing director role. How did that come about? Yes, yeah, so um, I suppose. First, actually, I do want to quickly um, touch on, I suppose, while E-Series was happening. Uh, 
which it did involve some of the team. There was uh, obviously a, we had a couple people uh, still working uh, in, in the medical side, so we did actually transform our business um, as well. Like um, you mentioned before, you know, how did we get through uh, through COVID? Uh, so, you know, we did transform our business in different ways with uh, obviously creating face shields uh, for uh, medical facilities. So I think we, it was about over 12,000 face shields that we uh, manufactured, which was the team. So they were, you know, they would go into the workshop, they would pick them up from outside the door, um, go home, make them and then bring them back. So there was no contact at any time. Uh, but they were constantly doing that. And then we also started Erebus Garage, uh, which was obviously a service centre, automotive service centre, uh, to keep some of those people that potentially weren't going to go racing again with a limited crew uh, in jobs, keep them uh, going. And then I suppose that's kind of how my job came about because Barry was doing so much and he always has. And... He's done such a good job at it, but he's always had to manage so much. So as the business was expanding, uh, Betty and Barry obviously saw a role that I could step up, help manage it, um, but then you know use my my knowledge in the commercial communication sort of side of business, while Barry can focus on the things that really are his expertise, which is. Obviously, you know, he, he's been a mechanic, he's been an engineer, he knows that side of it. But if I can help in any way, then it just relieves some of that, I guess, day-to-day job. And how is the garage going? Unfortunately, uh, the garage, basically, when we opened, I think we were open for about a month. And that's when Melbourne went into its second lockdown, uh, which also then saw our majority of our staff actually leave uh, obviously for the for the four four and a half month uh, time on the road so it is going uh, it probably hasn't uh, kind of ticked over as we thought it would this year just you know there was a big hoo-ha about it opening and then obviously we had to close for some time so it is opening back up now and we're currently putting in plans to you know get that Moving is its own business and not rely, relying on the race team. So really it will be uh, two different businesses that run out of the same factory. Mm. And, of course, all this has come on the back of the Adelaide 500 and the announcement that Holden was shutting up shop and yep. this was going to be last year. And it would have even been more surreal at Melbourne when you're taking, uh, who is it, Chi Yong, uh, Chi Yong Lee, a 44-year yes. employee of Holden for the ride of his life in the in the Penrite uh, number nine. Yes. And, uh, you know, a day later, you're not even on the track. Yes. No, it was, you know, it was certainly something, I suppose, you know, Grand, Grand Prix hot laps are hard to come by. Uh, I don't think I've ever in my time in supercars have actually had one. So when we got one, we thought we want to do something special uh, given the, the announcement, I believe it was probably two weeks beforehand, um, which which as a team, I suppose, you know, you, you adapt as we learn in 2020. So you know, as long as we're racing a car, will continue to go, um, but it, but it was obviously sad, I think, for Australia and just Holden as a brand, not necessarily as a race team, but to be able to take him for a ride, uh, I'm very, very happy that we got to get that in before everything shut down. Erebus Medical, you, you talked about the face shields and the work you mm-hmm. guys were doing, um, working with Dr. Carl. Yeah. And where... What did that enable you to do as a business? Obviously, there was the marketing side of it, or the you know the the outward PR side of it. But what did that allow the business to do with its staff and and uh, and also the other people who were helping out? Erebus Medical started with our engineer Marco De Rosso. He uh, is Italian, so he was obviously watching what was happening unfolding Italy quite closely uh, and seeing how bad the virus could potentially get. 
And he approached Barry and Betty and said, this is what they've done there. I think we should do it here. Uh, Barry obviously then reached out to Dr. Carl for his opinion, his medical advice, and he said, yes, you know, it's a great idea, And but also guided them in the right direction, as in you know, the original idea did change. Um, it was obviously... Uh, went through a development and, and what was easier to make multiple of and obviously didn't require more testing, things like that. And obviously, you know, Erebus didn't make money from it. So it was just something we were doing to simply help out uh, because of obviously what we were seeing happening overseas. And in, in the instance, if it did happen here and it did get that bad. Uh, and then obviously as well, we, we needed help to, to create the 12,000 masks. So the people that weren't necessarily working, uh, at, you know, nine to five anymore, there obviously were still some of us that were, including myself and a few others, especially while these series is going on. But the others that, you know, mechanics that couldn't actually go into the workshop to do their job, they don't have a laptop to work on at home. So, you know, it gave them something to do. And I suppose just, you know, it it is nice that people remember that we did do that, but it certainly wasn't a PR stunt. It was just us wanting to help out. And we're lucky that obviously we didn't need it as much as we thought it would. It, you know, it didn't get that bad, but there still was a shortage of PPE uh, for hospital workers. So it, I think every bit helped. And you know, Barry literally drove around Melbourne delivering them himself. So you know, he... He'll get goosebumps when he when he talks about that, and um, I guess you know seeing the people's faces when he did deliver them. So I think it was more just a, a feel good and just wanting to help the community. Finally, at the end of June, you're back racing down in Sydney. Yes. You're hoping to go to Winton, a nice close race, and the beginning of July, you're packing your bags for. You don't know how long you're going to be away. Yes. Um, yeah, we, we had gone to Sydney for the first race, which was it was awesome to be back and obviously, you know, get some momentum again um, and do what we all love as well. So it was very exciting to be back after such a long time. It was, I think it was longer than what we have in the off season. So it was very strange. Uh, and then we went home. Uh, I think we believe we had two weeks between races for three weeks, um, uh, and because of the travelling crew, we had actually made it that the travelling crew and our non-travelling crew weren't interacting in the workshop. So it would just so happen that the day that the borders were announced, that they were closing, uh, the travelling crew that had just gone to SMP was at the workshop. Uh, and there was, I think it was just before lunchtime, Barry got the call to say, this is what's going to be announced. Uh at the time, we thought Metro Melbourne wasn't closing until Tuesday at midnight. So that was our original plan, and that lasted for about an hour. And then we got a phone call to say the board is actually closed tonight, so we need to get out of here ASAP. We'll go to New South Wales, uh, potentially for two weeks, we thought, potentially four at the longest. Uh, go home. Pack your bags, say goodbye to your wife, say goodbye to your kids, be back here at five and we're leaving with the truck to get over the border. You drove, if I'm not wrong, you drove directly to S&P, parked the, parked the truck, but then uh, Betty had another plan for you to uh, be a bit more comfortable in some respects. Correct. We, we had um, you know, two weeks uh, before we were going racing again. Uh, and we didn't have two weeks worth of work to do. So, the yes, the, the truck did get parked at SMP. Uh, the crew then picked up Timmy, our truck driver, and they went down to Robertson in the Southern Highlands of New South Wales and spent time at Betty's farm. So it was a way of isolating for them, though not having to, I suppose, do it in the confines of a, of a small hotel room. Um, as great as... You know, obviously we, we adapted to the situations. I think two weeks in there would have been tough because uh, obviously, you know, coming out of Victoria to do the right thing, we need to ensure that we were self-isolating, we were keeping out of the public as much as we could. Uh, so Robertson 
down at the farm was the best way they could, could do that because they had the space that they could go do one shop for the week, stay there, and, and keep themselves entertained and not go crazy inside a, you know, a, a little bedroom. And as it turned out, chaos is going on around in that part of Sydney. The Crossroads Hotel blows up, which is not far away from Sydney Motorsport Park at Eastern Creek, and mm-hmm. it becomes a hotspot by the time you're ready to pack up on Sunday night. And all of a sudden, you're not going to the uh, the beautiful Southern Highlands again. You're trying to make a border dash to Queensland. Correct, yeah. So it, it started to happen, uh, actually, I think the, the Thursday, Friday before the race meeting. So I remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, is it happening again? Is this Grand Prix all over? Like, will we go ahead? And, you know, we just had to make sure, again, that we were just limiting our public interaction to make sure that, you know, anyone that had been at the Crossroads Hotel or anything like that, you know, we, we weren't in contact with them when we were out. We were wearing face masks, which in Melbourne is very normal, but in Sydney it's not. Uh, so, you know, we were doing all the right things to make sure uh, we we were limiting our interaction with anyone that could potentially have COVID. Obviously, we were being tested quite frequently as well, minimum once a week. Uh, and, and then, yeah, we, we made the dash to Queensland. So because we hadn't, Victoria had already become a hotspot, we had to be in New South Wales for two weeks before we could go to Queensland. So that meant that on the Monday after SMP, we drove to Port Macquarie. And then on the Tuesday, we could do the rest of the trip now that we'd been there for 14 days. While this is going on, you actually had a team member in in quarantine, James White, who's yes, we did. based out of South Australia, was quarantining so he could rejoin the team, I imagine. Yes, so he had come over for the first SMP round and because New South Wales and South Australia were cut off from each other, he did have to quarantine uh, two weeks at home, which to do the right thing, he actually quarantined at his workshop so that he could continue to work. So he actually uh, got a caravan, uh, parked at the workshop and and stayed there for two weeks away from his wife, away from everyone, so that obviously he couldn't quarantine properly, but also continue to work. So he's very dedicated. Uh, but, you know, the, the plan was that he would then be out of quarantine for the next race. And it being Winton at the time, that was going to be the last of the quarantine issues. Uh, though, you know, having to make a dash for the border did mean that we actually had to leave uh, Jimmy behind and that was also we had to leave Al behind as well he had actually had a quarantine test the day before and because we hadn't received the results yet he couldn't move so quickly uh, he had to wait for those results to come back negative and then because obviously his young family as well uh, it was just it was just a bit too hard so we we took who we had at the time um, and yeah went from there so some of the team that went with you was a force majeure. The others that you'd picked out in that original separation of church and state, if you like, how were you picking those people? How were you choosing? We're going to have these guys, but we'll, you know, this guy normally travels, but we're going to leave him back in Melbourne. Well, at Adelaide, for instance, we had, I believe, 27 people. Uh, that included the drivers, but, you know, Betty and Daniel, we had four or five commercial staff when you obviously have sponsors and partners, you know, signing sessions, things like that at the racing. It requires extra people to do things that as soon as you cut out those activities, you can automatically cut some staff. Uh, but the decisions were obviously you needed race engineers. Uh, well, unfortunately, one couldn't come, so Tom, the data engineer, stepped up. Uh, and, and then, you know, your crew chief and your number ones and your number two. So it basically just went in a in a ranking order until we got to the 11 people that we were allowed. And we're lucky, I guess, that we are a smaller team. Although I said we have, you know, we had 27 at Adelaide. You know, there are teams with 50. So, so picking those 11 would be much harder than what we had. Now, critically, there's... 
JobKeeper was, and Job uh, JobKeeper potentially was one of the lifesavers for a lot of teams because it's very hard to find good staff and it's very easy to lose them from a number of different things. And we'll talk about burnout later, but how much was that team that was getting locked down for the second time forced to go into the government programs to try and keep them on the books? Betty, was, we did have, I suppose, a few that, you know, obviously it couldn't work, but everyone was very um, understanding and I suppose uh, proactive in thinking of ways that, well, how can I help the business right now or how can I do my job from here uh, to to support the team on the road or just to support the business in general. So, you know, there were different things that we were looking at. Uh, it, we, we're currently looking and we've been looking for a while at, at more online SIM initiatives uh, so people working on things like that to, you know, help our business uh, and and potentially, you know, bring in new customers, new revenue, so that we can continue to go racing and just kind of, you know, it wasn't all about racing. Um, you know, as, as we learned with with the garage side of things, you know, it's there's sometimes different avenues where we where we can put uh, make an income. Um, not that it's all about that, but obviously, you know, racing is an, is, is an expensive business. Uh, so, you know, having anything extra always helps. And, yeah, people were really great in basically just being proactive in, you know, how can we help the business or just support them in any way they could from home. I'm talking with Shannon Kiley from Penrod Racing, the Managing Director of Erebus. We get to Bathurst and... At some stage, you must have been thinking throughout all the all the trials and tribulations that getting to Bathurst was could possibly be a bridge too far, or were you confident that we were going to get the season in once you guys got on the road? Once we uh, got past probably Darwin Townsville, uh, when we were in Sydney, as I said, we didn't really know what was happening. We thought you know we'll potentially be away for a few weeks. We'd get a few of the rounds in and then we'd go home and then we'd continue later on. But obviously as, as Victorian borders weren't opening up, uh, supercars had to quickly react and go, um, <clears throat> sorry, uh, quickly react and, and find a plan. Uh, and obviously, which is why our, uh, our season was so condensed. But yeah, getting to Bathurst, I think once we got to Townsville, it was obvious that this is what was going to happen and, and we had a plan in place to know, well, that's, there's our end date and that's what we're working towards. So Bathurst was, I think, once you got through the halfway mark, you knew you were nearly there. Uh, but, you know, obviously there, was, there were many things to overcome and challenges that, you know, supercars as an entire category was faced with to actually get us there. During this time, you've had... Uh a run to the airport, which we turned back from to get to Darwin in the first instance. And then the truckies had to basically get to South Australia without touching Victoria. Yes. So um, I believe that was about an extra day uh, for the truckies. Uh, there were, you know, teams that were decided to go to Gold Coast then to South Australia. Now, we actually decided to go straight from Townsville to South Australia and set up our base in Mount Gambier, which worked perfectly for us because that is where James White, our fabricator, is. So we had a lot of resources there uh, that made it feel like our second home and was basically as good as we were going to get um, anywhere in Australia and as, as close to being in our own workshop. So it was a bit easier for us because we did travel from Townsville uh, to South Australia, we didn't go too far down and have to kind of swing across. Uh, but you know, then then we went to uh, New South Wales for Bathurst and still had to obviously avoid borders as well. What what was the mental toll? Firstly, on the team members, because as managing director, whilst you're responsible for so many aspects of it, and I imagine you still have to, you know, work through logistics as well. What was the mental toll mounting up 
people being away from families, people not knowing really where they're going to be in a week's time? I found that everyone reacted differently or took took it differently, though in as an overall view, I think our team did really well. Every time, you know, we informed them of another change or, you know, we're, we're going to be here for a little bit longer. Um, they were really positive and they were basically people that potentially had wives or kids at home. I was lucky where I wasn't in that situation, so I had no dependents uh, at home. Uh, so I could be on the road with full focus. Uh, but those people with dependents, you know, there were still some of the people that would put their hands straight up and go, no, I'm committed, I'm here to the end. So, you know, people did react differently and obviously you kind of started to to learn your crew members more and I was actually really appreciative that uh, I'd been thrown into that situation, particularly with my new role because it gave me an opportunity to learn my team more. Uh, so, you know, not only... A, I guess, an overall, uh, you know, how, how it works and what we need to do when we are, you know, faced with challenges. I had to learn quickly and think quickly and react. Though also, you know, just getting to learn them on a different level, which potentially in my old role, I didn't have that level of understanding of what they did or, or necessarily who they were. When you're living with someone for 16 weeks, uh, you work with them every day, you start to see different sides of people come out. So you, you start to learn, okay, that might kick this person off or, or whatever it might be. So you just start to learn each other and then also support each other to get through any of the hard times if any of us had a bad day. Um, you know, I had a bad day and someone brought me, you know, my favourite block of chocolate. So just little things like that where I actually think it brought our, our team close together. Now... Your partner is a member of a different team and teams were supposed to be in their own private bubbles. Is uh, Was there merging of bubbles here? Was that uh, something that happened? Once we, uh, when we originally escaped the border from Victoria, uh, Barry did say to me, you go home and you can leave with Scott. Uh, we'll, we'll see you at SMP. So that initial two weeks, I was with Scott. Uh, and then, you know, once we started to get into the swing of things, we were we were doing, you know, with our teams in our bubble. It did feel very bizarre, uh, but it was just what we had to do. So if, if that's the way we needed to operate it, that's what we had to do. So once, you know, we got through those first kind of a few weeks or first two months, they did ease. It seemed once we got to Darwin, we were through, I guess, the toughest times in terms of uh, border crossings and quarantine, like, you know, not needing to quarantine or COVID testing like that. Once we were at that period, it seemed that we were allowed to mingle a little bit more and it became more of a supercar bubble rather than a team bubble. Now... At the end of Bathurst, the team finishes fifth in the championship. Are you happy yeah. with that result? I think if you – obviously, we, we finished fifth last year as well, which I'm going to call it fourth because we're behind the two Tickford uh, stables. So, to me, they're one team anyway. Um, so, we, so, we've maintained our, our pit position. Uh, at the start of the year, yes, we wanted to go better. We'd love to beat Tickford and we've been trying to for a couple of years now. Though when I look back at the year and everything it threw at us, just being a challenging year and you know the way we're all going to look back at 2020, yes, we're happy with this. But we'll do better next year. Going into 2020, you locked in one driver for 10 years and there was mm-hmm. a huge question mark over Anton. As it plays out at the end of the year, we know he's replacing... Um, well, he's going up to uh, DJR Team Penske. He's replacing either Scott or or Fabian, depending how you look at it. Was that a difficult period, having one driver who everyone was saying was leaving you? The, we, it wasn't new to us. It wasn't a 2020. It became a conversation. It became a conversation in 2019, and we, we always knew there was the opportunity he was going to leave. And I suppose as a team, you can't 
as much as we would have liked to have retained Anton and we were willing to step up to three cars to do that, you know, we weren't the the winning team. So obviously DJR did win this year. So, you know, a driver is automatically going to want that seat. Uh, so there's definitely no hard feelings towards that at all. Um, you know, we wish him all the best and we're very happy that we were able to put him into a position, uh, into a car for him to show his, his talent and then actually, you know, go for that seat. So we do think that, you know, I, I believe Anton would, would potentially say the same where without the opportunity that we were able to give him, you know, he wouldn't be there where he is now. But, you know, there was always that talk about him leaving and that is why we signed Will Brown 12 months ago in the instance that he would. And as it plays out, your press release last week said he's primed for 2021. Now, if ever he there's is. a cat that is confident, Will Brown sits very high on the confidence meter. <laughs> he does, but not in a bad way. Um, Bill is just, he's a bit of a happy-go-lucky uh, kind of guy, but he's also confident, but but he's not arrogant. He's just, you know, he knows what he wants. He knows what he needs to do. Um, but I think also with being a rookie, we can also guide him and, and kind of mould him to to the driver we want him to be as well. So um, we're very excited to have him. Uh, he's been in our fold for a few years now and then obviously a little bit closer this year, uh, knowing he was going to step up, but also through the relationship with Image Racing, he was, actually, you know, in our fold for Super 2 rather than uh, Eggleston Motorsport, which is where he'd been previous years. So he was working closely with our engineers this year. And it all kind of made that transition a lot easier. And why I said he was primed for 2021, because to us, he's not new. He's been with us for a long time. He knows our crew. He knows our cars. Um, and we don't certainly don't feel like stepping into the supercars uh, super as a rookie, even though that's what he'll be labelled. Now, as I mentioned, you've got a driver signed for 10 years. You'd expect a lot of stability there, but have you been surprised about the media's speculation and the, and the talk about the other car and David Reynolds? There has been a lot of media speculation, and you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's what it is. Uh, you know, we do have a 10-year contract with David and we think, you know, Will stepping up beside him, you know, we're excited for 2021. Uh, and, you know, perhaps there's just not a whole lot of news. Given we've got a bigger off-season uh, this time, maybe, maybe there's just not a lot of news stories and they just wanted to write that one. <laughs> well, a week's a long time in supercars, isn't it? Talking about last week, you announced uh, a change. And I guess this is part of the question about um, what did the toll of 2020 take? Mirko and Alistair are now moving on. Um, Alistair's going to another team and Mirko is going out into the big wide world of non-supercars. What yes, yeah. does that mean to a team when you lose two high-profile positions and certainly major senior positions in the engineering side of the business? Yeah, they, they are. Uh, though in saying that, there's also, you know, some, I suppose, uh, di different views on it where, you know, we potentially, you know, doing the same ideas, same tired ideas. Um, so we think, you know, having something new. But, you know, yes, uh, Alistair has, has gone on to another team. And, you know, Mirko being on the road, um, you know, four months is a long time, uh, as I said, to be to be living with the same people that you're working with. Uh, and he did decide, you know, at, at the end of the road trip that he did want to go out um, into the real world. I don't know how long he'll last in a nine-to-five job, but he has taken on a role outside of supercars, still engineering, but something completely different. And, and you know, we, we wish them both all the best. Um, it, it does happen in motorsport. It's like anything. Uh, you know, there's never, although there is stability, it, it's never forever. Um, but we're very excited to welcome George Cummins. Uh, he actually joins us from Kelly Racing. 
uh, with a lot of experience and he's got experience overseas as well. So, you know, we think it's a good opportunity to sort of, I guess, revive us. Uh, we do feel like, you know, although we're happy with where we are, we kind of got to a point in 2018 which we were moving forward and we've sort of uh, not progressed as, as quickly as we did in that 2017 to 2018 period. Uh, so, you know, we want to keep moving forward. And the the positive of right now is, you know, having a young driver and Will who we can mould to be the driver we want him to be and, and who just wants to get in the car and, and go fast and doesn't matter what it takes. Uh, and then some, some fresh eyes as well and fresh ideas uh, that, you know, potentially things that we haven't explored before uh, is really exciting. And you have taken the opportunity to do some internal promotions as well with yes. uh, engineering Tom Moore and Bradley Tremaine going to the crew tree for all. Yeah, so, so that's definitely some, some stability for us. So uh, Brad Tremaine, who steps up into the crew chief role, he has been with us since the transition from Brisbane to Melbourne, Mercedes to Holden. Uh, so he's been with our team for a number of years now. And, and Tom's been with our team since 2017. So they're guys that are both you know, ready to make that step up and now that opportunities presented itself and especially Tom you know with Alistair not being on the road this year Tom did step up uh, and although Alistair was still uh, there obviously you know Tom did an, a brilliant job um, and it's probably uh, made his transition that little bit easier sort of having a halfway jump and then uh, next year with the guidance of of George he'll make that step up which is more than you know ready to do and also, I've spoken to Tom, and he's excited as well by George just to, you know, be a sponge and learn off someone new as well. He's had he's had Mirko and Alistair there for a number of years now, but to be able to, you know, we've got that stability, but to be also be able to bring in a few fresh faces and fresh ideas kind of reinvigorates the team. Interestingly, we talk about COVID normal. We're not there yet, but. What did you take out of this year? What learnings, what ways of doing business have you been able to say, this will work for Erebus in 2021 and beyond? One of the biggest things for me, not necessarily as a, as a business thing or potentially, potentially, I don't know what it would mean for the business at this point in time, but you know, being able to adapt, which we obviously did, but then also myself just, you know, it threw so many things at us and we had to react so quickly to different things. So it's it's definitely been a year to learn how to adapt, whether that's yourself. Uh, I'm someone who loves organisation and doesn't do well with changes or, you know, I'm just craziness, uh, which, you know, sometimes when you have to deal with David Reynolds is, doesn't go smoothly, but um, the you know, the, the yeah, just adapting, learning to adapt. I think as a business and you know, personally, it has been a big learning curve and something that I'll take in to next year, and particularly in my my role because it does bring new responsibilities, um, new stresses that I haven't had to face before. But it's all part of the transition, uh, and I'll just keep learning. And. What about structurally in the way you manage the business? Are there tools now that you didn't potentially know about or didn't know the benefits of, i.e. teams, meetings and and uh, communication channels? Certainly. So, you know, one of the things that we learned this year is, you know, obviously we had, a, you know, as, although a small team, um, the, you know, we did have, more people uh, at Adelaide than what we needed uh, during the rest of the year. So we did learn that, you know, you've got to sometimes just be more efficient and more effective, uh, you know, do things differently. You know, travel costs are huge for a supercast team as they were for that entire period. But, you know, how can we do things differently that potentially save costs uh, you know, our numbers are still the same, going to be the same next year, but how do we, I guess, you know, mould um, different different positions and different structures within the team to make us, you know, be able to um, 
perform at our best within those numbers. Uh, George Cummins is actually uh, based up in Queensland, lucky him. Uh, he doesn't deal with the Melbourne weather that we get, but you know he will be basically still with us every day. It, it taught us that we don't have to all be in the office. I'm sure most businesses in Australia won't have a 100% return to work. Um, So, you know, it did teach us that we can all communicate and work effectively even though we're not in the same office. So, you know, George will spend half of his time in Melbourne and then the other half on, you know, Teams meetings or Zooms working with the engineers still every day. And I'm interested in one thing that Erebus set up a number of years ago was the academy. And we've heard in the last week that one of your academy drivers has now been... Uh, ushered into the Ferrari Academy. Yes, James Warden. So uh, we've supported him uh, for a few years uh, since he went over to Europe. Yeah, but the, the Academy extends, I suppose, you know, a, a fair way. We want to, uh, you know, get the, get the kids from karting all the way to supercars. So it's basically a, a creating pathways program is what we call it. So, you know, we want to give these kids, uh, junior drivers, the opportunity to be able to step up and, and know where their next step will be. So, you know, that's going from karts, which we, we obviously support uh, a few kids in, uh, then Toyota 86s, then Super 3 and Super 2 with Image Racing, and then hopefully one day they'll make it to us. And obviously it's something that uh, we're seeing a little bit with what you're doing with Will Brown. Exactly. So, I, yeah, Will Brown is, you know, the first Erebus Academy driver that has graduated to the Supercars Championship. So, you know, it, it's all a matter of taking them under our wing, uh, nurturing them, guiding them in the right steps. Uh, and then, you know, hopefully, you know, they're, they're people that we see talent in and we can see uh, a promise. So, you know, hopefully, you know, when they get to that stage, you know, they, they, main, they maintain the team the entire time. And, you know, we see these young kids actually make it through. Sponsorship is a huge part of supercars. How were you able to engage and still um, give your sponsors who were, you know, still by your side, although not the experience at the racetrack, saw the value for money that is part of what supercars is, business to business and and those types of things. Yeah, so, you know, as I mentioned before, content was king during during that lockdown and still will be now as well, obviously, it, during a, an extended off-season. So, it, changing the way that we did content, it was more about, uh, you know, our focus in the past had potentially been on more of a polished product. And we learned that people don't want a polished product. They want something behind the scenes that they can't see on TV. Uh, so, you know, it was just about giving them more content and it was raw content. So it didn't, it didn't seem like it had been edited. It, it was, it was us as raw as you could get us. Um, so content was obviously king and then we had to adapt in the ways that we delivered uh, certain activations so pit tours they weren't virtual as did a lot of other things uh, you know we usually have a setup at the back of the garage which I believe I've sat in with you before uh, for sponsors to watch the racing and, and see what happens in the pits while the racing is on so in, instead of that, because we hadn't, couldn't have fans in our garage, we had a radio communication set up via our YouTube uh, that our sponsors, our members could get on and listen to. So while they were watching the race, they could actually listen to the engineers and the drivers on the radio and get a bit more of a behind-the-scenes look into what was going on. So, you know, they're just some of the things that we did to turn their activations virtual um, and, and to try and give them an experience that they... Obviously, they can't get the same experience at the track, but what sort of experience could we give them from their lounge room? And, of course, one way that all the fans got to see fly-on-the-wall style about Erebus was, of course, the television program. Were you well represented? Do you feel you got the, the run of the green with uh, your portrayal, your character in the show? Uh, my portrayal I was probably pretty spot-on. Um, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of me. It was more just uh, 
me trying to get drivers to signing sessions and whatnot, which is, is half the battle of a race weekend. Uh, so, you know, there were obviously things that you know, were great and then there were things that, you know, we don't believe were portrayed entirely. But when you think about it, we had a camera operator follow us for the entire season. So, you know, there's hours and hours of footage. Basically, the camera was on from when we woke up to when we went to bed. So to put condense that down into eight hours, um, obviously they did have to get the juicy bits out. Um, and, and we believe that, you know, some people weren't portrayed how it was or some things were potentially taken out of context. Um, though, you know, unfortunately, you know, we don't regret that we did it. We think it was great. Um, so great that Betty's actually decided to do her own second season um, and just go a little bit deeper. So, you know, show not so much the racing, um, you know, as I spoke about before, people want to see the behind the scenes stuff that they can't see uh, during the telecast. So we're actually decided to do a second season. Uh, which has followed us for a little bit of this year. Unfortunately, COVID obviously changed those plans, but it will continue to follow us into next year and just give fans a bit more access behind the scenes. So it will be less racing, but more workshop and what goes into going racing than what was actually on track. And as you said, it has clearly come out of this year that people are looking for that experience to augment what they see at in the race car coverage, which Supercars Media do a fantastic job. Yes. Shannon, it has been an absolute pleasure to catch up with you this evening and uh, we do look forward to seeing you once again at the Bathurst 500 in February. But before then, I hope you have a fantastic Christmas and New Year. Thank you very much. Yeah, I look forward to hopefully, obviously seeing you and... As we've heard today, um, you know, seeing some campers and, and some more fans back at the track at, at Mount Panorama, it'll be very different being a sprint event, but very looking, very much looking forward to it. And, and you know, seeing everyone's faces again as well after a very challenging and strange year. Yes, indeed. Shannon Kylie joining us here on Inside Supercars. My thanks to her. Until next time round, keep smiling and bye for now. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next time for more or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited.